9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and I'm coming to you from New York City. Also in New York City, I, I think, is... Uh, one of our guests and our friends, Max Boot. Are you in New York City, Max? I am. Max Boot, columnist of the Washington Post and um, uh, noted author. And near New York City, I think, I'm not sure, 100% is, of course, our regular Thursday co-host, Ryan Goodman. Ryan, are you in New York City or are you near it? I'm uh, 90 minutes away from you, dude. 90 minutes away. Uh, depending on the traffic, that could put you almost anywhere <laughs> in Long Island. Um, and uh, in Washington, D.C., we have another of our friends and our regulars, Dr. Kavita Patel, who's a uh, practicing physician and uh, was not only an advisor on healthcare in the Obama administration, but handled legislative affairs and outreach and worked for Valerie Jarrett. Hi, Kavita. Hi, David. Hi, everyone. Thank you. Um, and so, you know, so many things have been happening this week. I just think we need to have a free-flowing discussion. One of them, and I'll just start by going around. I'll, I'll start with you, Kavita, but uh, the, uh, Joe Biden picked a vice presidential um, uh, running mate this week. Uh, so far, it seems to have gone extremely well. Uh, they raised $26 million, I think, in the 24 hours following picking her. The Republicans can't seem to figure out how they want to go after her. Um, the president um, thinks she's nasty because she's a woman, and he thinks all women are nasty. Uh, but what do you think, Kavita? I, well, in full disclosure, I, I was one of the early Senator Kamala Harris supporters in her presidential campaign, and it came after interacting with her and her staff and felt pretty, felt pretty confident that even, even if I wasn't sure she would get through to the presidential nomination, we can talk about why that might have happened. I, was, I knew that this was one of those people, she was one of those people that was just going to change a lot of the faces of politics. And I'll say it, I was incredibly thrilled. And, and surprisingly, even to me, for being a DC veteran, I was overcome with quite a bit of emotion when the announcement went out Tuesday. And I, I, I say I was surprised because I think it means at this point in time, it just meant a lot to so many not just women, I think a lot of men that I knew were also overcome with emotion because of so many firsts that, and, and not firsts, but so many possible kind of firsts that she is going to take, take part of. And I'll just say it, I think I said it to you before, I can't think of anyone better to get in Bill Barr's face when things kind of fly around regarding constitutionality or legality around voters' rights. So I was incredibly thrilled. And I also think it was a sign of grace. That video that they did, that they released, uh, of him offering or talking to her about the, um, the vice presidency, I think that's going to go down in history as kind of one of those images 
that defines so much of what we're seeing, the pandemic, the historical aspect of their ticket, and just where we are in the country. Yeah, I have to admit, I'm, I'm you know, in the interest of full disclosure, I was a Kamala Harris uh, supporter and even gave some money to her campaign before it was a presidential campaign and uh, felt that she was more the future. And I think I was one of those people who got a little bit misty too because, well, first of all, you know, there hasn't been that much good news in 2020. But secondly, um, she she represented to me the future in a way that Joe Biden, who I have a lot of respect for, didn't. And so it it created a kind of it it, it enriched the, the 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 ticket in a lot of ways. I thought. What did you think, Max? I mean, I thought it was both a bold and historic choice as well as a safe choice. Uh, it was kind of the expected choice. And if you'd asked me, you know, a year ago, who did I think was going to be on the Democratic ticket, I would have probably said Biden and Harris, because that was kind of the conventional wisdom. And there's a reason why that was the conventional wisdom, because Joe Biden is this uh, kind of moderate, middle of the road white guy who's been in Washington for half a century. And so he reassures uh, Trumpy voters in places like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, uh, that he's not part of some nefarious plot to uh, you know, steal their money and overrun their communities and so forth. Whereas Kamala Harris is obviously somebody who is much younger, who is not white, who is in fact uh, half African American and half Indian. Uh, we've never had anybody who was uh, that combination of, of people, and certainly not a not a woman who's been vice president. So she is a a historic choice, but somebody who is, I think, very well qualified, having been a district attorney, attorney general in, in California, as well as a U.S. senator. I don't think anybody can argue that she is not qualified. And so I think she gives a lot of reassurance. And of course, she's been tested, even though her presidential campaign was not successful. Uh, she has been on the national stage. And that has been true of a lot of people who became vice president, the likes of uh, George H.W. Bush or Al Gore, or many others, including Joe Biden himself. Uh, who had unsuccessful bids for the presidency before being tapped uh, for the number two pick. And so I think she's a great choice. And I think the uh, the Biden-Harris ticket is very strong, very mainstream, but also has the potential to generate real enthusiasm in the Democratic base, even beyond their desire to get rid of Trump. So I, I think it was a great choice. And you've seen in the last few days, there really haven't been any hiccups. I mean, we've seen hiccups before with the selection of people like Dan Quayle, uh, 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 or, or Sarah Palin or others, but uh, this this has been very, very smooth, which is just what you'd expect because Kamala Harris is a pro, Joe Biden is a pro, and I think they're off to a very good start. Um, yeah, so Ryan, uh, we have, you know, one of your kind, just to say an attorney, um, and 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 somebody who has made quite a name for herself in the legal profession prior uh, to doing all of this, now standing alongside a former chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Um, are, t- does it lift your hopes for the rule of law in America at all, given that it's on the ropes at the moment? Absolutely. Um, I think, and I think also the way that Kate had explained it, like who better to litigate the case in the public square against um, A.G. Barr than Kamala Harris. I, I like who better? I can't think of anybody better. She's also just so highly disciplined in focusing on the right messages and the right um, points of weakness and exposing uh, corruption. 
So we've seen that time and again, so in terms of that part of her track record. So I think having that person in the driver's seat with Biden for the next couple months is huge um, because she can deliver on that. And I think a huge part of the game in the next couple months is going to be about credibility of the attorney general uh, in the ways in which he tries to present, you know, the case on various issues on election interference and things like that. So to have her be the person that I think will be turned to time and again uh, to, for the campaign to speak out against that uh, with great credibility and discipline and, and the like, I think is right. And I think it was maybe Kavita had also said, you know, for young boys and girls and, you know, I have a son as well as a daughter and God, what a <laughs> amazing day and a moment for them. And, you know, it's all we talked about that night. And one of the, the one word that I loved uh, out of many of them in the initial, you know, announcement was the word, I think it was ambitious. There was the word that, um, Kamala Harris said very early on in the first couple minutes, she said she was paying respect to the people and the women who have come before her that make this possible. And she, and she referred to the ambitious women. And it's like, absolutely, you know, given that that was the reported knock against her by some insiders that she was ambitious or overly ambitious, which is like, hooray for, you know, ambitious um, women in this space because that's exactly, you know, what our moment calls for. Um, and what a great way for her to <laughs> move that um, needle uh, in that way uh, in, the, in the initial announcement. So I just thought it's tremendous in so many different levels. And, and then what Max had just said as well, isn't it remarkable how the they must have been prepared for this to the who in, in the sense of how much they prepared for the main three people who Biden could have picked and nothing, nothing has come except for confusion and contradictory messages about Kamala Harris that don't stick and aren't um, real. So really quite astonishing that that's how successful it's been in the past uh, couple of days. It's, it's true. I'm, I'm picking up on Max's point though, you know, I've heard a lot of people say she ran an unsuccessful candidacy, but she's now the vice presidential nominee. And only one person gets to be the presidential nominee. So when you run a campaign and you end up on the ticket, that's not bad. And for people like Joe Biden and for people like, you know, Al Gore very nearly or George H.W. Bush, that can work out um, in the long run in a, in a very substantial way. Uh, one of the things we've heard, though, with the rollout of this campaign is the issues that they intend to bring front and center. Um, and Kavita, you know, must be interesting for you. You've been in the White House You've also been doing healthcare uh, throughout your life in, in, in many places on the Hill, in the White House, in your professional life. It sounded to me like this COVID crisis and prosecuting the president for his uh, uh, failures was it, it's, it's kind of the number one issue. It seems to me like it's at the center of this campaign. Did you get that impression? And yeah, and you, you do you no, and do you think that's the, you know sound some sensible? Yeah, it's interesting too because you know you will you will recall Max certainly will Ryan will uh, around all the controversy with uh, Senator Harris and and all honestly Vice President Biden not necessarily going as far left as Bernie Sanders on Medicare for all. A lot of criticism from what we thought would be 
kind of the main point pre-COVID around, you know, their stance on where where do where do where does Senator Bi- where, where does Senator Harris and Joe Biden stand on supporting and endorsing Bernie Sanders' bill? And you'll all recall that moment where all the Democratic candidates had to raise their hand if they would be okay with getting rid of private health insurance. It's amazing how far we've come. And today you heard Joe Biden talk about a national mask mandate, which is very hard to do at a federal level, but he basically said there should be a national mask mandate and he called on it today. And what you're seeing is signs that they're basically assuming office. I mean, the, the kind of comment today of making a national mask mandate was really his version of like, look, this is my executive order and we've got 81 days until the election and you're going to hear every day how I would run you know, the country in terms of strategy. And I think that's the right thing to do and expect him and her fully to put things out where you stop and you say, wait, well, you're not the president. How can you do that? But that's what they're doing. They're acting presidential. I find that very interesting. And it'll be even more interesting to see how much they can actually do on day one. You know, that, that'll be obviously a pretty tough test, but I, I, that's the way the team is shaping up to think. When you look at the staffing, um, as, as all of us know, a lot of this gets done behind the scenes by staff. They've put in some of the strongest players from both the Obama times and kind of the current new crop of political people to really re- overhaul the transition and be responsive to the current pandemic. It's pretty, I, I, it's very exciting to see how each day I bet they'll do something that looks presidential. It's interesting, Max, because it seems that, you know, what has happened is that in the past 48 hours, even though Biden's been the presumptive nominee for some time, the Democrats have a ticket. And for the first time in three and a half years, the Democrats have high profile leadership that's going to go toe to toe with 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 Trump. And all of a sudden, Trump's not alone center stage. And that's that seems like a big deal because, you know, every once in a while you'd hear from Pelosi, you'd hear from Schumer. But from now through this election, every day that Joe Biden makes a statement or Kamala Harris makes a statement, they're going to get similar weight to what the president of the United States gets. And that's, that's going to be new and and, and, you know, I mean, I wonder how Trump's going to react to it. Uh, what, what, what do you think of how this changes American politics for the next two couple months? Well, it's going to be a weird campaign because obviously it's going to be a largely virtual campaign, which I think in a lot of ways actually helps uh, Joe Biden. I mean, he's no spring chicken and it actually is probably not a bad thing for him that he's able to do this largely uh, from his basement without having to undergo the wearying and, and grueling pace of a, of a normal campaign where he's hopscotching around the country. And I think so far he's run an extremely smart and disciplined campaign, which has not been at all flashy. But I think the central insight, uh, you know, that, that he is acting upon is what Napoleon uh, reportedly told his marshals, which is never to interfere with your enemy when they are in the process of defeating themselves. And I think what we've clearly seen uh, is one of the greatest self-immolations in the history of American politics. What's happened just this year with with Donald Trump, where you know at the beginning of the year I would have made him a slight favorite to win re-election, despite all the craziness and and all the awful things that have happened the previous three years, because fundamentally the economy was strong, and obviously that is no longer the case with double-digit unemployment, the worst recession 
uh, since the Great Depression, and of course, more than 160,000 Americans dead and counting, and the coronavirus still raging out of control. I mean, just imagine how things might have been differently if uh, Trump had been a semi-competent uh, uh, president, if he had not been as as awful as he actually is, and if he had just responded in a normal human manner uh, to this pandemic, which hit America, he could now be coasting to re-election if the United States had an experience with coronavirus similar to that of countries like Italy, Spain, France, Germany, or many others. And of course, our experience now is, is turning out to be much worse. And, uh, you know, Trump is compounding the damage because every single day, of course, he says something that that is horrendous and racist, crazy, conspiratorial, just showing that he is not only incompetent, but almost literally out of his mind. I mean, that this is a person uh, who should not be let out of the house unsupervised, much less be put in charge of uh, the most powerful country in the world. And I think that contrast between Biden and, and, and Trump is a very telling one. And, and, you know, the more that Trump talks, I think the more that he sinks himself. And I think Trump and Biden has been very smart and strategic about his response, and he's really avoided uh, the kind of gaffes that he was notorious for earlier in his campaign. Kamala Harris is not somebody that I expect to see make a lot of errors. And so, so far, they've run a tremendously uh, smart error-free campaign, which really has not given any real openings to Trump, which is why I think he is so frustrated. I mean, you can see him kind of flailing about, but he's never figured out a nickname for Kamala Harris. He still hasn't really figured out a nickname for Biden that is stuck. And he hasn't really figured out how to attack them. And you can see that with Trump. He's trying to attack them uh, for being too left-wing, but also not left-wing enough for the Democratic base. He can't really figure out if they're tough on crime, soft on crime. He's kind of launching every single attack he can think of, many of them completely contradictory, because he doesn't really have a beat on them. And this reminds me of the difference between somebody like Biden and Harris and Hillary Clinton, because remember, by the time that Trump faced Hillary Clinton in 2016, she had been on the receiving end for of decades of right-wing vitriol. She had been vilified. She had been demonized. Uh, she had been caricatured, turned into the Wicked Witch of the West in a way that, you know, anybody who knows Hillary Clinton thought was preposterous. But this was this caricature that really stuck with the American public. And Trump played into that with his little nicknames, Crooked Hillary and all the rest of it. But the ground had been laid for decades. That just simply is not the case with Joe Biden. And the Russians so far have not, even though they're trying, they have not come to his rescue. There's not been any damning leak of emails or anything like that. It could still happen, but hasn't happened yet. And so Trump, I, I think, is, is, is just, to me, is feeling more frenetic, uh, more unhinged than usual. And he's normally frenetic and unhinged, but more so than usual because he just can't figure out how to take Biden down. And he feels like time is running out for him and he's not really catching up in the polls. So, Brian, you know, I agree with what Max has said. I, I think that uh, one of the problems Trump has is, thanks to COVID, thanks to the economic crisis that's followed, he's got nothing. He doesn't have a vote for me, I did the following kind of campaign. Uh, and that's why I think that the other big story of this week, which is um, – the president seemingly continuing in the direction of trying to rig or influence the outcome of the election, notably today saying that the post office needed money in order to be able to deliver ballots on time. And he was keeping the money from them and he wasn't going to give it to them. 
And then, you know, at the same time, hearing also today that postal mail sorting centers are mysteriously seeing their mail sorting machinery being pulled out of the centers. Um, And so, you know, we may look back on this week and say this was the week that Kamala Harris entered the campaign and helped energize the Democratic ticket, and it was the beginning of the end. You might also look back at this week and say, here was Trump ramping up, stealing this election. And so far, there has been no effective response to that other than, gee, this is terrible. What, what, what do you think about that, Ryan? Um, yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think we're entering a new dangerous territory with respect to different ways in which it looks like he's going to try to um, interfere with the election. But the use of the postal service is a huge one. There's also the report earlier in the week that his advisors were talking about could they actually suspend the delivery of ballots in particular. So they're just really trying to do things that are motivated by the attempt to interfere with Americans' ability to vote. It's just astonishing um, that this is happening. And to me, it's also happening at the same time that Belarus is happening. It's, and you see this person apparently caught on video and what's alleged to be somebody who's supposed to, uh, one of the, she was ahead of one of the polling stations and she's walking down the ladder out of the back window of her apartment carrying a bag of ballots. It, it's just the, the mindset of somebody who would try to deny people's ability to vote. I mean, this isn't just like voter suppression your regular type of voter suppression. And the president admitted to it today. He said, he stated his intent. The most egregious kind of conduct, I don't know who could think that that is defensible under any circumstance and is not highly impeachable. It just, it's easy to say that. It's not a stretch to say that's an impeachable offense, what he's described. And why, you know, why is he doing it? There are polls out. I tweeted about that, but there's the, um, one of the polls that came out said this week, among those who say they'll vote by mail, 81% Biden, 14% Trump. Of those who said that they will vote in person on election day, 67% Trump, 26% Biden. Um, so that's kind of gives away what the game's about, but that was in some ways trying to infer or what was happening, but the president said it. He actually said exactly this is his motivation to try to um, undermine the post office at this particular juncture, uh, thinking about uh, people's ability to vote. So, Kavita, you know, you're a Democrat. You served in the Obama White House. You see all of this happening. Uh, I, I, I suspect you may be having the same reaction that I am, which is incredible frustration at the inertness of the response. There is a guy going on television who controls the executive branch of the government saying, I'm going to cheat. His postal, you know, his, his po- postmaster general, who's incompetent to the job and is, you know, got huge conflicts, says, I'm going to help him cheat. His attorney general says, I'm going to help him cheat. The entire executive branch says, we're going to cheat. We know that. Mitch McConnell is perfectly happy with them cheating. And the Democrats are doing what? I'll I'll, 
not only do I agree, I actually wanted to ask, I'm going to turn around and say, not only does it frustrate me, but I, I wanted to ask since we have Max and we have Ryan, I wanted to ask both of them. It feels like the inertness is highly correlated with this kind of permanent state of exception that we're in that, and, and my question for Max and Ryan would be that I feel like some of that inertness is because we're, cons- you know, it's a pandemic. Uh, we send, mil- you know, military troops into Portland because, you know, of, of, of all the insane kind of problems with uh, violence that apparently local jurisdictions can't control. And it feels like this, the inertness is tied to this fact that now our politics have been defined by this permanent state of exception. Max wrote about, Q, I don't know if I'm saying it right, QAnon, 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 QAnon. If you, what you wrote yesterday. The hyphen, the hyphen is silent. The hyphen is silent, exactly. <laughs> That's I've, I've heard different people on television say different things, so what can I do? But I've when you think about that, it feels like we're just constantly in a permanent state of exception and Democrats respond to that. It feels like we're responding to it by being inert, but what is that doing to like our politics? Because yeah, we're not going to have COVID every year, but it feels like there's a, like there's something, Oh, the, the, the postal machines, we don't have enough money. We have enough money for a wall, but we don't have enough money for our machines. And, and it's on the Democrat. Chuck Schumer is lazy. You heard Kellyanne Conway in like the, you know, on the stump say, well, what is Chuck Schumer doing? He's getting ready for his speech at the Democratic convention. So how are we in a permanent state of exception? And like, is that what our politics are going to look like from here on out? Well, I mean, I think the fundamental problem is that this has been a criminal administration from day one. And, you know, everything they've done, beginning with their attempt to ban Muslims, which was actually the very first thing that they did, remember, at the beginning of January uh, 2017, has been outrageous and, and borderline illegal, and sometimes more than borderline illegal, sometimes flagrantly illegal. Uh, I mean, this has been in this unrelenting day-after-day assault on the norms of American democracy, on the barriers against presidential abuse of power, which Trump is unaware of and has nothing but contempt for. And so, I, I mean, I think that there is a certain amount of scandal fatigue that sets in. I mean, I know I, me personally, I have been steadily outraged since the summer of 2015, which is five years now, ever since the day that Trump came down that damn escalator at Trump Tower and started berating Mexicans as Muslims and mur- as, as murderers and, and rapists, and then, you know, went after Muslims saying we, get, we need to ban them until we figure out what's going on, went after John McCain saying he doesn't like people who are captured. I mean, every single thing that he has done since he launched his presidency to me has been offensive and outrageous, and I've been in this permanent state of, of, of being pissed off basically every single day for the past five years about what he has done to the first of the Republican Party and then to the Republic. Uh, but I have to admit, it's, it's hard to sustain that, that degree of outrage. Um, and I think, you know, Democrats are in a tough spot, obviously, because the presidency has vast inherent powers. And nobody imagined that somebody like Donald Trump would come along and with absolutely no respect for the traditions of the office, no respect for basic, basic ethics and morality. We didn't, turns out, a lot of these ethics rules didn't even apply to the presidency because nobody thought they had to apply. People just assumed that we would have, you know, a reasonable degree of ethical conduct on the part of a president. And that's generally been true, even with people like Richard Nixon, who seems like almost a Boy Scout by comparison with with Donald Trump. And so, you know, 
I mean, I wouldn't be too hard on Democrats because remember, I mean, uh, Trump is after all only the third president in U.S. history to actually be impeached. I mean, so they actually did something, but the public didn't seem to care. I mean, the reason he's down in the polls now is not because he tried to blackmail Ukraine and got impeached. The reason he's down in the polls is because of his horrendous mishandling of the coronavirus and the economy. And I certainly think uh, it's incumbent on all of us to uh, raise as much hell as we can about what's happening at the post office, because this is, I mean, truly, truly outrageous. I mean, this is an attempt to steal the election, and it's not going to be the last attempt either. I mean, if the election is going to be at all close, uh, Trump is and Bill Barr are going to try to disqualify Democratic votes. They're going to try to stop the counting of mail-in ballots. They may have Republican state legislatures uh, present uh, separate uh, competing slates of electors. They're not going to show any respect uh, for our democracy. They're, I mean, Trump is, is wants to emulate uh, people that he admires, like Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. He wants to be a permanent president. And he doesn't care how he does it. Uh, so, you know, this is outrageous, but uh, I have to admit, most ordinary Americans are, are understandably more focused on their family's health, on their family's economic well-being. There are more pressing issues. So I think the only thing that's really broken through, I think, other than the coronavirus, has really been the Black Lives Matters movement, which was by some measures the largest street mobilization in U.S. history. Uh, but, you know, it's just it, it's been frustrating for me that we can't get more people to to be more outraged by Trump's assaults on democracy, but that's uh, that's just that's just kind of the reality right now. And sadly, uh, you know, he's going to do his best uh, to steal the the election. And I and I suspect that our best safeguard is going to be the courts because that's been the one reliable instrument of of trying to uh, check uh, his excesses. I don't know what I'd be curious for Ryan's view is as to what the what the legal recourses are but in in my i mean in, in my kind of gloomy estimation ultimately the question of whether we're going to have a free and fair election is going to be determined by one person and that's chief justice roberts uh, because if this election winds up in the supreme court he's going to be the swing vote we know there's going to be four partisan republicans who will give trump anything he wants but what is chief uh, chief justice roberts going to do i think that'll that could well be the question that determines the fate of American democracy. Brian, you know, what, what do you think? And let me throw something else, you know, throw another log under the fire as you contemplate it. Um, it's not just the post office. You guys at Just Security, um, at justsecurity.org, excellent organization for everybody to go and look for news and analysis, uh, have been writing about, uh, you know, Ron Johnson and the efforts to, uh, do some more public digging into Ukraine, which is just carrying forward uh, the, the the kind of uh, a pattern of abuse that led to the, the impeachment of the president. Um, and uh, the president today also uh, made a statement about the upcoming Durham report in which he said, you know, Attorney General Barr can set his place in history by by taking whatever he gets in Durham and going after and prosecuting these Obama types, um, uh, uh, or you know, if he drops the ball, then you know he's he's going to be nothing. In other words, putting you know essentially putting pressure on Barr to go and um, use the power of his office for political purposes. So the, you know, it's not just going to be the post office, but can anybody do anything, or do we just have to wait? 
to determine what Chief Justice Roberts might decide? Um, <clears throat> so I think on some things we can do a lot because it's a, like I thought before, you know, a game of public legitimacy. And um, if they do trot out a report that's obviously weaponizing the Justice Department to try to um, damp, politically damage people, well, they can only politically damage them if the public understands it a certain way. And so I think there's a huge part of that, that there's something to be done about. And, and people, in a sense, I think like ourselves, commenting on it and exposing it and the like. And just a couple positive signs along that dimension are, one, in Trump's interview on Fox News trying to put pressure on Barr, why is he having to do that? Maybe because Barr doesn't have the goods or Durham is not willing to deliver the goods. And I think Durham might actually be a person who uh, cares about his uh, uh, respect for him and his name as it moves, as, as history will remember it or as his colleagues and his, the legal community understands who he is in the coming years. And there was an element where Trump even says something like, oh, if they just prosecute two sm you know, small people, which I do think is what might happen. Durham will have a couple indictments, but it will be very small people that did things wrong. Um, or maybe one person who leaked Michael Flynn's phone call with the Russians, maybe that, but nothing more grandiose than that. And then Barr will try to potentially weaponize it. Then Trump, why is Trump saying that? I think because maybe he knows that this is not going to be bigger than that. Why is he putting this kind of public pressure on Barr? And then the second is um, exactly right. Ron Johnson is running his effort in the Senate, um, doing the thing that Trump got impeached for, which is trying to, bizarrely enough, use the Senate's authority to investigate the vice president's son and not say a word about uh, Trump's children and their uh, potential ethical wrongdoing. But then um, Ron Johnson gave an interview in the last 24 hours to Hugh Hewitt. And he's not, and Hugh Hewitt is saying to him, what's happened to your investigation? And why haven't you uh, brought forward James, you know, James Comey and, and Brennan? And there's one back and forth between the two of them that I thought was remarkable. It shows that there's success along this route. Hugh Hewitt says to him, quote, what does that mean? I mean, who is the screw up on your committee? Which Republican doesn't want to get to the bottom of this? End quote. And then Ron Johnson says, quote, we had a number. We had a number of my committee members who were highly concerned about how this looks politically. End quote. So, you know, they kind of get it, I think. We know that Mitt Romney didn't want to, you know, pre prevented them from subpoenaing the guy who ends up being one of the conduits for Russian disinformation, one of the Ukrainian operatives. So I think that's a very winnable game. I then do worry about exactly, like, are the courts going to be able to act fast enough? Does it actually favor the Trump team that they can just run out the clock? You know, yes, litigate against what we're doing with the post office and good luck to that even being decided before December, before November. Um, it depends on what the case is, I think, because in some cases, maybe it'll be a federal district court that will immediately issue an injunction to stop some kind of mischief by the government. And then that's frozen in place. So I think a lot of it is going to be potentially quite dynamic um, in terms of how that, the, what the courts can do and if they can do it in a timely manner. Um, one last thing, just a flag, because I think it's a kind of an interesting piece that Deborah Perlstein had written for Just Security uh, in July. If the election remains uncontested, uh, it remains contested on January 20th of 2021, where there is no declared winner yet because it's being litigated in the courts. Uh, the 20th Amendment says that it goes to the Speaker of the House. And she's like, this is like a civics lesson. People should understand this. So there's another calculation here. And the Trump team 
in some ways, luckily, is not, you know, three-level chess players. But there's a scenario in which they're trying to run out the clock. Or when Trump said, let's delay the election, does he really want to delay the election? Because it could be Nancy Pelosi on January 20th. Um, delay the election is not in his favor. And it wasn't. So I think that's another, you know, element in the equation that folks should think about in terms of where the court's actually in litigating this in the courts, uh, who it helps at different, in, under different scenarios. Just want to say, I hear in the background somebody's dog yapping. And I just wanted the listeners who might hear the dog yapping to know that my dog has a robust, deep voice and does not make this kind of a a dog noise. And and so it was was not mine. It was Ryan's. Um, uh, is, Is your dog okay? I'm, I'm texting my wife now. You're texting him. I'm <laughs> texting the dog. Is the dog okay? Um, so, so um, Kavita, you're a medical doctor. Um, is there some kind of vitamin that Max can take to maintain his anger after five years? I mean, <laughs> you know, does this deplete him in some way? Does he need sunlight or hydration? What is it we, that... We could all use a little more sunlight, but I, I think the only vitamin that we need is like, I, I want to take, maybe we should be take, we, we should all be rethinking like injecting disinfectants because apparently it works for Donald Trump. He's able to able to suspend his own reality from looking fatigued. I, I have to say, I'm... In, Max is absolutely right. I mean, there's pandemic fatigue. I mean, nobody, I don't even want to talk about COVID. And so Trump fatigue is like a real thing that I think should have a diagnosis code attached to it for reimbursement purposes. But I, I think that it's, it's sad because we've now kind of, it's, our norms have just been so redefined that, can you believe that there's actually like a whole string on Twitter about how well, you know, it's it's pretty, you know, Trump finally came around to wearing a mask when he had that moment several weeks ago. That's how bad things have gotten. We're, we're just now, we've, our denominator, we're just going so far down that we're like, yeah, you know, months later after 150,000 people have died, he's like, yeah, maybe we should wear a mask. And that's, it's hard not to get fatigued when that's the state of reality and our cultural norms are, you know... The QAnon thing, I, I mean, I just don't know how, I don't even know, I get fatigued because I don't even know how to overcome that inertia to Max's point. And, and Ryan, you're the, I think Ryan's spot on. The fear that I have not being a legal person is that the dynamicism, dynamicism around the courts and the legal response and, and candidly, like the inability of like the ACLU or kind of legal volunteers to do what we would normally do in a, an election time because of the pandemic, I'm, I'm gravely concerned if this is going to be, we're like strap in, we're in for a rocky ride. And candidly, we're all sitting here on Zoom. I don't know what to do about it. I really don't. Give more money to Joe Biden. Fine, I can do that. But is that, what else should we be doing? What's on the deep state checklist of how to how to bring back our democracy? Like, what well, is that? It won't bring back our democracy, but I have to say one thing that makes me feel a little bit better that I've just started doing uh, the last few months is I've taken up boxing, and actually that's why I look so sweaty. I just came from a boxing lesson, so I'm getting like all of my anger and frustration out on the punching bag. Uh, you know, so it actually makes me feel a little bit better when I when I come back and, and talk with all of you. I love it. Uh, yeah, you look invigorated, but it, you know, I think Kavita raises an important question. 
um, because people ask, what can they do? And, you know, giving money is, is one thing that they can do. Um, I, you know, I, I, I get the impression sometimes that everybody thinks the right thing to do is to start their own podcast. Um, I'm not sure, not sure that I want to encourage that kind of behavior. Um, but, but, but what, what do you think, Max? I mean, can, I mean, doesn't look like the Congress is going to do anything. So it, it's, it does look to me, and maybe after you respond, Ryan can respond to this, like it's going to take a bunch of lawyers challenging a bunch of things, bringing a bunch of lawsuits, that, this, that we're sort of moving early into, you know, the, the Florida hanging Chad phase of this election um, because it's just going to take people saying, no, this ballot can be counted or this day, you know, the, the post office has to deliver this or whatever. But what, what do you think, Max, constructively can somebody do? Or are we just all watching this slow motion train wreck of American democracy? Well, I mean, the good news, this is not Belarus, okay? I mean, your vote still, knock on wood, will count. And please, you know, do everything you can to defeat not only Donald Trump, but to defeat all of his Republican enablers as well, the people who've allowed him to get away with his nonstop assault on our democracy the past four years. And sadly, the Republican Party is becoming crazier and crazier on Tuesday. Uh, you know, as Kavita mentioned, I wrote about this QAnon candidate in Georgia who won the Republican primary and who's probably going to wind up being in Congress. And she is, you know, mad as a hatter, subscribes to this QAnon cult, which is so insane. It's, it's even hard to describe uh, their belief system, but this is now well, becoming... We, we also had this, this young guy who's running in, I think, North Carolina. Yeah. Sending photos of himself from Hitler's vacation home. Yeah. And, and, and I just have to say, Max, this is maybe my only chance to say it. Max has gotten inappropriately beaten up on social media for what, I don't know, everything from turncoat to this. I think of you as one of like the premier kind of conservative thinkers. And the idea that someone is like kind of calling you a turncoat to the Repu whatever, to whatever party, frankly, again, it disturbs me. I mean, I, I have conservative Republican friends who are just as disgusted by Donald Trump yet they do not speak out. They have not said, you know, so Mitt Romney gets like a victory lap for being the one person that speaks out against him and didn't actually vote against him. No one's going to beat up Max anymore. I don't. Not, not, David know, is going to protect me. No, no, now that Max is... Wait, that's, what, what, that's insane. That's insane to think that like Max writing about QAnon, which is insane, is somehow him turning his, you know, turning on the party or whatever it is. That's well, crazy. This, this, I mean, this was actually uh, one of the, so many crazy things have happened. But one of the craziest things this week was when not me, but Adam Kinzinger, who was a Republican congressman from Illinois, tweeted that mm. you know QAnon is a fraud, and he was attacked by the Trump campaign. Yes. When you so when you attack QAnon, the Trump campaign is offended yeah. by that. So yeah. that that shows you where they're at. <sighs> So, 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 Ryan, I just want to add one more dimension of this. Uh, we, we've just got a couple of minutes, but I was struck by this story that you guys had of a guy in the Defense Department saying, here's why I'm quitting. Uh, and I personally have been one of these people who has been shocked by how few people have quit in the face of the kind of insanity that we're talking about. You want to talk a little bit about this this story? Yeah, so... Um, his name's Kyle Murphy, and he recently resigned as a senior analyst analyst in the Pentagon. 
Um, and he'd also served in a capacity whereby he personally briefed uh, Trump before phone calls with foreign leaders and was able to then, or part of his job was to listen into those phone calls. And it's um, just a remarkable personal essay. This is not a person who's otherwise had any kind of public profile. So he says, um, based on his knowledge of Trump, and another part of what we should know about him is he closely has worked on issues of um, autocratic authoritarian leaders in other countries and how they don't leave power even when they lose, have lost an election and what moves social movements and what moves those people to gain, you know, to grasp onto more authoritarian levers of power when they know that they've lost uh, the public. Um, and he says uh, he, knowing Trump, sees the danger signs, that he sees that Trump's approach to losing the public is like these other leaders. He also said that he has lost confidence, essentially, in uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and Secretary Esper in their ability to refuse unlawful orders by the president. Um, and the last thing he said is based on his experience um, over 10 years in the government and looking at other countries that have gone through this, that Americans need to be prepared for peaceful resistance in order to secure the vote if, it's, uh, if the president tries to steal the, the, the election. And, um, you know, he's putting himself at great risk by speaking out publicly. And I do think it, you know, raises the question as to why haven't others done this? Because it's so much of this is very clear. It's not murky um, in terms of the picture that he has seen and that his colleagues must see as well. Well, I think that's a, you know, a good note to end. The conversation could go on and on, but uh, the, 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 the prospect that is clearly raised by all the aspects of this discussion that we've had is that it may take personal mobilization by everybody, wherever they can be, to ensure that these elections actually work. Uh, to ensure that people are able to show up, then to ensure that uh, polling stations stay open. We've seen in the past efforts to shut them too early, to ensure that abuses are seen and reported. Um, it's, 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 it's not a case where somebody's going to wave a magic wand because the people that we've elected to be the fire department in these cases are actually the arsonists. And, you know, that is where we are right now. We have, we have arsonists running the fire department, and that puts all the responsibility on the rest of us. Uh, we'll obviously keep talking about this, uh, hopefully with all these folks who are our friends and who are very smart uh, in the ensuing weeks um, uh, as we go in, in, uh, up to this election. Uh, but for the moment, uh, let me thank each of them. Let me thank you, Max. And you don't look too beat up from your boxing. So I, I think that uh, it must be working for you. Let me thank you, uh, Kavita. Let me thank you, Ryan. And, and let me thank your dog. And uh, uh, everybody, you know, join us again. And if you want to see what we're doing uh, and help us, go to the dsrnetwork.com uh, and uh, see, see the stuff we have on offer. And also, uh, uh, go to where it says membership and uh, offer us, uh, you know, whatever you can to help us continue to do what we're doing. And while you're at it and you're on the internet, go to justsecurity.org, uh, which is doing fantastic work under the leadership of Ryan and his team. Thanks, everybody. Stay healthy. Bye bye. <laughs>